Hello everyone, it's May 1st, 2018. So we got a cracked heat shield on Mars 2020. The resource prospector has no prospects on the moon. But we do have some great correction burns from some awesome listeners. We can fix that much. NASA, they're on their own. And liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 156 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. Good morning, David. Good morning. So we are right now, as we record, waiting for a Blue Origin launch. At some point during the show, hopefully we will see one, and I guess we'll update the listeners, but they'll know, so, but whatever. <laughs> right, right. It's just not exactly breaking news when we report it two days later. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of days ago, you had put into our Blanket Fort, which is our Slack channel for our select patreon supporters um you put a link to some royal air force slang and i have to say yeah. i was just reading that and that's it's fun it's um and you said that you want to incorporate that into your everyday speech whenever you get the chance and i don't blame you um i was reading through some of them these are fun like it's the royal air force and they are british so you kind of get that kind of you know uniquely british uh, uh parlance i guess so for example to bag up that's to vomit into a sick bag provided in the aircraft and i don't know there's something uniquely british about that you know you don't have a sick bag where you don't vomit you bag up that just sounds very british to me it's perfect like all of these are are you know very british uh, i really liked uh chris radcliffe responded to my link he responded uh qsl schoolie that's puka jen as i poets hope the bus calls out angels 329 and a daisy cutter sunday yep i didn't get any of that <laughs> but i'm i have a reference here so I'll, I'll have to figure that out it's i mean it's not too bad you know what a daisy cutter is i can see where that came from um that's just basically the prop cutting daisies i guess as yeah. it lands right so a daisy cutter. um i really like poets it's uh, piss off early tomorrow, Saturday. <laughs> um, and then uh, Puka Jen is good general information. Uh, SQL is asking for uh, for an acknowledgement. So SQL schoolie, that's Puka Jen as I poets. Good, good general information because I'm leaving early today because it's Friday. It's really good. <laughs> so Puka Jen, good general information. Okay. So Jen, I guess, stands for general information. What does puka mean? I mean, like, a puka is a hole in Hawaiian, but this is spelled P-U-K-K-A, and I don't know why they would be using that slang. So, I don't know. Um, huh. It's all very cryptic. At least it's not Cockney rhyming slang, but that would be fun, too. Wouldn't be, I think that there is some Cockney rhyming slang in here. Actually, there's probably more than we think. They just, you know, lop off the part that rhymes, you know, because that's, that's how it works. Um, there, w there was one that I was like, ooh, this is probably Cockney rhyming slang, and I ran it past my wife, and she couldn't figure it out either. Um, but I, I think my favorite one is the Mahogany Spitfire. If you don't fly planes, <laughs> you fly a Mahogany Spitfire. So Sam Moore just corrected us. It's it's actually pronounced Pucka. So Pucka Jen, not Puka. Go. Well, I guess we should move on to our uh, This Week in Spaceflight History. Do we have any winners? I think we might just have one, huh? Yeah, just one. This is Valentin Frank, and he guessed correctly uh, before we finished the recording. <laughs> so the clue for this week was paving the way for putting Simon into space. And this is kind of cheating. So I was kind of expecting you to talk about how it was spelled and for that to be a little bit of a, a giveaway. Um, but Simon is spelled C-I-M-O-N in all caps. Um, so this week in spaceflight history is the 3rd of May, 1976. It was the birth of Alexander Gerst, um, who is an ISS astronaut. So, you know, I like to kind of mention 
astronauts' education. And in this case, uh, Alexander Gerst has a lot of uh, geophysics uh, in his background. In particular, he got a PhD from the University of Hamburg, and his thesis was on volcanic eruption dynamics, uh, which is super cool. And also, I thought it was worth pointing out that in The Martian, there is an astronaut named Alex Vogel, who's the commander. Oh, not the commander. He's one of the crew of the Hermes. And then in the movie, they actually made some deliberate choices to make him basically be a stand-in for Alexander Gerst, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, so he was, he's only been in space once so far. Um, From May 2014 to November 2014, he was part of Expedition 40 and 41. And I I see people asking about uh, talking directly to space station using uh, their ham radio kit. And actually, Alex is one of the people who used the, the ham radio set fairly regularly. Uh, It's called ARIS, the Amateur Radio on the International Space Station. He used it several times for scheduled meetups uh, or scheduled calls to uh, to students. Um, So I'm betting that a couple a couple of weekends he actually uh, just sat and listened. So he is coming up on another uh, mission uh, that I'll talk about in a sec. Um, but if you are a ham radio operator, you might try to catch him. Also, he uses ham on the ground, and his call sign is Kilo Frank 5 Oscar November Oscar. Um, so if you are a ham operator and you've ever run across this uh, this call sign, sounds like you might have talked to Alexander Gerst. On that previous mission to ISS, um, he also did... Um, an EVA that I think we talked about in in pretty fine detail. Um, it was the one where they um, set up a mobile uh, a power backup for the mobile transporter. Do you remember that, David? I don't think I do. I mean, it's possible that okay. we did, though. It's quite possible. Anyway, so like I said, he's coming up for another mission to ISS. He's currently scheduled to fly in May, and he'll be taking part of Expedition 56 and 57. And in fact, he will be the commander of Expedition 57. So the clue, Simon, is in reference to an Airbus-built experiment that he's taking up with him, which I think is pretty goofy, but we'll we'll see how this turns out. Um, it stands for Crew Interactive Mobile Companion with the N taken from the end mm-hmm. of companion. I, I don't know why they didn't just go with the name SEMO because that seems kind of cool. It's not the best acronym, but it's something. <laughs> anyway, so it's basically a uh, a spheres experiment, or what was the other one? Space B, I think. Um, it, it's basically a, a free-floating computer. I mean, it, it looks like it's, you know, a Raspberry Pi with the screen, but it's actually uh, presumably a, a better computer than a, than a Raspberry Pi. Um, but anyway, it's this little floating uh, ball with a screen on one side. Um, you have <laughs> Valentin in the chat says, how but cute. Um, it's it's got a face uh, in in particular Simon has has a face displayed on its screen, but also has cameras and some cold gas thrusters so it can do some station keeping. It'll do a couple of experiments um, specifically with uh, with Alex, including uh, some sort of crystal experiment. Uh, it will use its cameras to help solve a Rubik's cube, um, and I imagine that's uh, not only cameras but you know spatial uh, awareness. It'll also uh, participate in a medical experiment. Uh, they they said a complicated medical experiment using Simon as a flying camera, and that's pretty cool. Um, they they talk a big game about Simon being a 
a friend and a personal assistant. It's like, well, that doesn't work on Earth very well. So why would it work very well in space? But using this thing as a flying camera platform could be pretty cool. You know, it's it's more energy intensive than just strapping a camera to the wall, but it it, that still seems pretty cool. Well, I think it's easier to be a companion in space just because you can float around. The whole mobility thing is not as much of an issue. I mean, I guess it still is because you have to, you know, keep your orientation in everything. But uh, yeah, it seems easier to me, you know, to have robots floating around in space doing things. Yeah, but it's not like Simon can do anything though. Like it doesn't oh, yeah. have any any grabbers or manipulator just it just floats and so it's like well my you know my phone might as well float but siri isn't that interesting but your phone can't float that's the thing it can't do it this can because i mean if your phone could float you could think of all kinds of things to do that you could have it take a picture of you kind of like a selfie or something but that's not really possible yeah there, there are selfie drones that you can like throw into the air and it'll take a photo and fly back to you so that i mean yeah that's a thing but i still wouldn't call it a companion but i i think that's mostly the pr aspect um because this thing um is using uh machine learning specifically the uh, ibm watson machine learning program so i think that that uh, specifically with like gnc and like learning to actually fly around the space station i think that's really important i think that's something that can really be helpful is is learning how to you know not just fly and name but to like actually be able to navigate and uh, and stay out of people's way like that that is the beginning of um, of something really important and interesting and that's kind of what we were all hoping was going to happen with Robonaut until it broke so what is our clue for next week all right next week in 2010 the clue is this dawn isn't so peaceful and maybe those words don't make so much sense in English let's just give a little bit of a clue so that's next week in 2010. This dawn isn't so peaceful. Maybe not in English. Or maybe better understood, not in English. Yeah. So if you think you know what that might be in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Mars 2020 heat shield has cracked. Yeah. So... Do we know why this happened? Um, apparently, this is not going to delay the launch, but uh, yeah. what caused this crack, this this giant crack, actually? <laughs> right. Yeah, it is a giant crack. No, we, we have no idea. Um, we know that it happened while they were testing at Lockheed Martin. Um, and in fact, they were doing some pretty intensive testing. They were testing at 20% over the expected loads uh, on re-entry or uh, on entry to the Mars atmosphere. So, you know, this this is kind of the above and beyond uh, uh, margin for error kind of testing. But yeah, it, it cracked. And like you said, it was a huge crack. It was near the outer edge and it spanned the entire circumference. So that, that sounds like it's... Um, do, do you think that's a cross right across the face or a cross? a crack all the way around if it spans the circumference i think that that means that it's a ring-shaped yeah. crack like all the way around the yeah. edge yeah okay that's what i was thinking too so yeah that's not good and so when they were testing it does that mean that, that they just had it in a wind tunnel and they were blasting it with heat as well or was it just <laughs> uh the dynamic loads and not necessarily the heat uh yeah i'm i'm guessing well i i mean you can't have a wind tunnel that or right now we don't have wind tunnels that can blow air as fast as, as re-entry happens they do have those ones that you can hit them with some pretty high temperatures in in some pretty high wind speeds right i i think it was probably during like vibration testing that seems more likely to me or uh thermal vibration testing maybe 
since we're talking about Mars, uh, I guess the speeds wouldn't have to be as high to simulate the kinds of loads that you would get, right? Because we have a denser atmosphere, so there's more. So you increase the pressure, and that kind of simulates the same thing as a lower pressure, but at higher speeds. Wouldn't that yeah, not be? I don't, I, I don't know, right? Because what to be exactly the same, you'd have to do low pressure, high speed, but maybe you can do high pressure, yeah. low speed. I don't, I don't know. I think that would. Uh, be more or less the same. I mean, and and you'd have to adjust the temperature too, I suppose. But well, I mean, given that it's an ablative heat shield, I feel like that's probably not something you want to do with your flight article. So this is not what's going to be flown anyway, because they have two heat shields. So that that's not going to be a huge issue, right? Actually, is that is that true? I don't believe that they have a backup because this already was the backup for MSL. I think they built two heat shields for MSL and they used one of them on the mission and now they're using one on Mars 2020. And I think that they're going to have to build a brand new heat shield to replace this broken one. So they don't have a backup heat shield, but they are working to build a replacement. According to Spaceflight Now, um, in this article, it says that the situation will not affect the mission's launch readiness date of July 17, 2020. So yeah, they have to build another one, but I guess they can do that within the next two years. Yeah, so I guess the key here is that this heat shield doesn't affect other components, right? Because it's kind of just bolted onto the back shell. It seems to me that that's obviously maybe why it, it cracked in the way that it did was uh, if it's a crack that you know runs the circumference of the heat shield, that seems like it has to do with the mounting of it or how it's being supported underneath, something like that, you know? It's also made of a, of a bunch of tiles. So maybe the tile construction, maybe like those tiles are glued together and they separate it along one of those seams. I don't know. At this point, we're just, we're just speculating, so. Yeah. Moving on. Uh, next up, Resource Prospector mission canceled. So Resource Prospector, that lunar spacecraft or probe, really, or lander a that was rover. going to be... Rover. That's the right word. A rover yeah. that was going to be looking for ice in polar craters that were in permanent shadow. So yeah. um, that's all been canceled, huh? <laughs> and like, I don't, I don't know, like, I, I wasn't super expecting this to, to be a mission that actually got off the ground. I don't know, maybe, I, maybe I'm just being cynical, but it just didn't seem like it was a super high priority. And now we know that it's not a priority at all. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's a cool mission, because there's something very compelling about the idea of yeah. going to the poles and looking into craters for ice, you know, like, that's different. Yeah. That's something that I feel like hasn't been done on the moon. I mean, I suppose it has been done, but not like this. There's never been a rover at the poles, right? Yeah, I don't think so. This would have been the first but time. Specifically not in the polar, you know, those uh, constant shadow craters. Like, like that's, that's even more important than just being up at the poles. Yeah, which reminds me, how is this thing supposed to be powered because if it's in permanent shadow, because I thought maybe it was looking into the craters, but not necessarily going to be in shadow itself. Because at the poles, you can also be in permanent sunlight as well. Right, and in some places, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the mock-up that they've built, or that they you know built and tested, didn't have any solar panels on it, as far as I could see. But that doesn't really uh, matter because those things are usually you know wired anyway, wired up to you know mains power or whatever. So you know it's not like we have a, a bunch of plutonium two thirty eight sitting around that we can send to the moon but yeah that, that's a really good question i don't know what the plan was maybe uh you know maybe they could dip down into craters and then come back up into the sun before they ran out of power that sounds like a bad idea and yeah zodiacal light isn't enough to power a rover okay so you just said zodiacal light like i'm assuming it as in zodiac but with an al at the end of it i don't know what that means is that like a Oh, yeah, that's starshine. Oh, starshine. Oh, starshine. Yeah. I never heard that. Okay, zodiacal oh, really? starshine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they used it a lot in the Apollo era. 
from what I've seen, the resource pro resource prospector mission had like a week long mission life is what they were targeting. And I, I always assumed that that was, oh, you know, they say that they're going to uh, have their primary mission done in a in a week and then you know the thing lives for three years but maybe that's just how long their batteries last maybe they mm -hmm. have you know week-long batteries and they can get it down into a crater and then and then just leave it there yeah so according to wikipedia the resource prospector will be powered by a 300 watt solar array so it, it actually would use uh, okay. a solar array i guess it would have to come out into sunlight or maybe it would just remain in, yeah, in sunlight and it would use look down yeah and look yeah. down into those craters because it gets gets pretty cold in lunar shadow Right. Yeah. And, you know, what wired rovers aren't a bad idea either. If you can have a base station in sunlight and then power cables going down, you know, they, they can get tangled. But like we've we've done that before. So Bridenstine tweeted about how they're going to take some of the instruments that were designed for RP and put them onto commercial landers. And he's doing the whole uh, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. And, you know, that that. That'd be pretty cool to send commercial rovers to the moon. Like I've always been in favor of that. So there, there is a program called CLIPS, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program. And CLIPS is, is intended to land 10 kilograms by the end of 2021. Um, or, or at least that's kind of what the, what they're looking for from commercial partners. And that's pretty cool. I don't know if that's actually super likely to happen considering that RP was intended to fly in 2022 on EM2, Exploration Mission 2, um, as like a secondary payload. It seems like maybe bringing that back or, you know, bringing it ahead a year and putting the load completely on commercial partners, none of whom have actually landed on the moon and all of which, you know, were just uh, cut out of, uh, what, a million dollars from the Google Lunar X Prize. This has probably got Moon Express pretty excited because they, you know, yeah. do have that system. And um, right. apparently, like if they used to full on, what's it called, uh, the MX-9 Frontier Class Explorer, uh, they can get up to 500 kilograms of payload to the surface. I don't know if that's necessarily the poles. And actually, I know that we did discuss this some months ago, um, and we talked about exactly that. But yeah, I mean, they can still get quite a bit of payload to the poles. So mm -hmm. this is an opportunity for them to shine, as it were, in the lunar shadow. But yeah, I, I really hope that that somebody's able to jump on this and get some of these instruments up. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. There was a request for proposals put out by NASA um, on the 27th. So I'm sure they'll get some stuff back. And I can't be too upset when there are commercial companies out there that are willing to take up the challenge, which I think that there are because uh, that's always yeah. exciting to see, especially Moon Express, because I want to see Moon Express do something. Uh, they have all <laughs> these really cool looking devices, these little these little R2 droid looking uh, spacecraft. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just look up, uh, well, actually, I don't know the name of it. Um, look up the MX-9. Is that what it's called? I mean, that's the actual name of the... Uh, that's the lander, yeah. That's the lander, yeah. So if you go to moonexpress.com, I guess it's just called the Lunar Prospector or Harvester. At least that's what I'm looking at right here. It doesn't seem to have a name name. Yeah, and so MX-9 is interesting because they actually built it with you know, this type of rover in mind. So, you know, it's definitely the kind of thing that that's built for purpose, more or less.
All right, let's do some short and sweet. And we just got two. What's our first one? First one, TESS is on its way. After its launch on April 18th, TESS, the transiting exoplanet survey satellite, has begun boosting its orbit to get into its final science orbit. A Falcon 9 deposited TESS into an initial orbit of 150 by 170,000 miles. The spacecraft has now achieved an apogee of 220,000 miles. Four more maneuvers will be made to put it on target for a May 17th lunar flyby that will give it a gravity assist, putting it into a resonant orbit with the moon, making one orbit around the Earth every 13.7 days. Uh, next up, a GSAT-11 recalled for inspection. GSAT-11 is an ISRO comsat that was scheduled for a late May launch along with the U.S. television broadcast satellite. Uh, both were to be launched aboard in Ariane 5, but that launch has now been scrapped. The reason for the recall is due to concerns after the recent launch of GSAT-6A in March, which has since stopped communicating with ground stations. Uh, the chairman of ISRO has stated that that the satellite is not being recalled to India because of any glitch, but simply that they want to perform additional tests to ensure it is glitch-free. Basically, they just want to be extra cautious here because they have apparently just lost communication with uh, GSAT 6A, so they want to make sure that that doesn't happen again with uh, GSAT 11. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. Yeah, we got a couple of really cool corrections slash comments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got some good ones for this week. Uh, the first one is from Felknight and Cap MSFC, um, and this is about the lunar orbit thing that I think confused me more than anything because <laughs> I was not aware of it. Yeah, so I I had said two things that were wrong. One was um, I, I wasn't specific enough about what lunar orbits uh, are stable. Um, specifically, it's low moon orbits are unstable, but it actually gets more complicated than that. And and so Felknight uh, wrote a comment on our on our Reddit post saying, "Hey, isn't it isn't it just low moon orbits that get perturbed uh, by the lumpy gravity?" And then Cap MSFC came in as well and gave us some good info. Here's the deal: yes, moon density issues perturb satellites that are under a hundred kilometers. But over 100 kilometers isn't super stable either because at that point you begin to be affected by the three-body problem with Earth. And then, you know, obviously the higher and higher you go, the, the more and more problematic the three-body problem gets. Um, but it becomes non-trivial around, you know, 100 kilometers. And then the other thing I said was that um, back in the Apollo era, we didn't know about the perturbations. But actually, um, we did understand them. What we didn't understand was that there are these four frozen orbits. So what's really cool is not only did we know about the perturbation, but the lunar module ascent stage actually tried to use it to its advantage. They tried to put it into an orbit where they could boost it into a low orbit and then it would get perturbed into a higher orbit and kind of steal some delta V. Unfortunately, it turns out that we overestimated the amount of perturbation for these orbits, and they only got half the boost that they expected. So their rendezvous calculations had to be altered. I mean, you know, they were going to be altered anyway, because real world liftoff is never the same as on paper liftoff. Um, but they ended up having to, you know, do some fairly dramatically different burns versus what they had planned for in pre-mission. And then finally, this is this is really, really cool. Cap MSFC gave us a couple links um, talking about what these frozen orbits are. And it turns out they're not frozen. I assumed that basically there were four orbits where you could fly through belts where everything was perfectly balanced on each side and you could just be in a normal orbit. It turns out that's not right. They're actually, uh, even these 
four frozen orbits um, get perturbed, but they, in, instead of being like actually frozen, they just loop, right? So you get perturbed and then perturbed and then perturbed, and then you get perturbed back into the original orbit you were in. I'm not getting why it's, why it can resynchronize or whatever and get back into a stable orbit, like after so many I actually orbits. think mathematically this has to happen at least once. Um, I think we're just lucky that we have four. But Im- imagine uh, instead of a curved uh, frame of reference like orbit imagine a table with hills and valleys on it okay and imagine that it's frictionless so that you can push a marble and it'll just keep going forever as if it was an orbit right so in most directions if you push this marble it's going to move in different directions as it goes up and down these hills and gets pushed to the side and back but you're unlikely to find a circular path that's completely level on that board right and that's kind of what i was thinking was okay there must be one ring that's perfectly level and it can just go around and around but instead imagine that it can kind of do kind of a lumpy weird pattern but at some point it comes back to the point where you pushed it to begin with okay i see what you're saying all right okay yeah that's a fairly simple concept to grasp all right i guess that explains why the book that i've referenced a couple times the one by ed bel bruno fly me to the moon you know he talks about using like you know mathematics and chaos theory and so forth to calculate (laughs) these very interesting types of little orbits which is something that is possible because of this i think you know that you can actually use this to your advantage i'm willing to bet in some interesting ways not only that but that's um that's also also getting into um, the three-body problem, where you're using mm-hmm. the Earth and the Moon's pole to do some pretty weird orbits, which is what we just talked about with Tess. So let's move on to the next one. Uh, Eric Blood via email. Yes, yeah, so he emailed us about the LDSD. I was confused last week as to what exactly defines a balute as opposed to a parachute or a supersonic deflector or I'm sorry, a supersonic, a low-density supersonic... Decelerator. Yeah, a decelerator. So I guess this clarifies that a little bit and explains some other things. (laughs) Yeah, so I've got two quotes that I wanted to read. Um, So we're going to try to get Eric on the show, actually. We'll see if that happens. But Eric actually worked on LDSD. So this is coming from somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. Uh, All right, simply put, LDSD did use a balute, a balute... Still doesn't feel right in my mouth. Simply put, LDSD did use a balut, but not as a primary drag producing device. So LDSD's two primary technologies that were under test were the supersonic inflatable aerodynamic decelerator, SIAD, which is the, you know, quote unquote, inflatable heat shield, kind of that skirt that deploys around it. And that's what I suggested might be an attached balute if you you know if you want to consider it that and then the second one is the supersonic parachute which is the one that we mentioned getting torn apart at mars we typically use a center aligned mortar to deploy the parachute out of the can in the back shell for ldsd that wasn't possible due to the vehicle test configuration thus our team developed a trailing balute that would extract the parachute in conditions similar to that of a mortar deployment the balute wasn't publicized as it was technically part of the flight system not the device under test. So this is really interesting. I had said, oh yeah, I think LDSD counted as a balut. And I got it totally wrong because I didn't realize that they actually had a balut as a drug shoot. <laughs> but it turns out they had an honest to goodness trailing balut, which is kind of what we're thinking about for yeah. the second stage probably. Yeah. So that, <laughs> they're cool. Yeah. That helps explain some things. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll have him on the show to uh, elaborate on this further because um, 
I could use some clarification. Let's go ahead and move on then to some upcoming spaceflight events. We got a couple of them here. First up is on May 3rd, and that's the launch of a Long March 3BE, and that's launching AppStar 6C, and that will be lifting off from Xichang uh, Satellite Launch Center. The AppStar 6C is a commercial communication satellite for APT Satellite Company. It will provide direct-to-home television and cellular backhaul to the Asia-Pacific region. So that is uh, a launch window on May 3rd of 1600 UTC through 1641 UTC. So a 41-minute launch window. I think, as usual, you cannot watch this one live, <laughs> but uh, if you can, go ahead and try. Um, and then Sam Moore in the chat says that Momo 2 is apparently trying to fly after May 3rd sometime this week. So we'll we'll see if that actually happens. Um, we have a, a couple of sub suborbital launches uh, that we appreciate Sam Moore for pointing out. Um, so then uh, after that, uh, we're looking at an Atlas V and the 401 configuration launching InSight. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. Um, not only InSight, but also Mars Cube 1 and Mars Cube 1, 2. Yeah. These are both uh, 6U CubeSats um, that will be communication satellites, um, which is just super cool. <laughs> I, I think we need more of these things in orbit around Mars. But yes, um, InSight is scheduled to fly May 5th at 11, uh, 1105 uh, UTC, and it's got a window that extends to 1305 UTC. Um, because Atlas can do things like that. And also, it's worth pointing out that this is flying out of Vandenberg. I was hoping to um, be able to go down and watch it, but I don't, I don't know if that's actually going to happen. Um, but yeah, uh, Mars launches, interplanetary launches out of the West Coast are pretty awesome, if you ask me. And then next up on that same day is the launch of Exos, a suborbital launch of a test vehicle called Sarge. I don't know much about Exos, but basically, this is a new company that is doing some interesting things for suborbital research i think that sort of sums it all up is there a place to watch that live by the way do we know probably if if you go to exosarrow.com they'll probably have a live stream there um you know who who knows um they're a small company they get to do what they want so that's launching from spaceport america in new mexico on the 5th and that will be a launch time of 1340 eastern time yeah hopefully you can watch that live on their website so check that one out because it'll be interesting to see this little uh new company do this uh, suborbital launch. And then the last of our launches, there's a Falcon 9 full thrust. This is actually the block, the first Block 5 Falcon 9. And it is flying Bunga Bandu 1, which is a uh, geostationary communication satellite for Bangladesh. And that's pretty cool that, you know, a, um, a relatively small country is flying their first, their first communication satellite. But I think what we're all secretly really excited for is uh, Falcon 9 Block 5. Then we have um, two smaller events that are coming up that aren't launches. So on Wednesday, May 2nd, uh, they are releasing the most recent Dragon from the spacecraft. Um, so release is scheduled around 10.22 a.m. Eastern Time on uh, Wednesday, May 2nd. And coverage is uh, going to start around 10 o'clock. And then I always like mentioning these because they're very fun uh, to watch. Um, but there's going to be a spacewalk briefing. And that's happening on Tuesday, May 8th 
at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, we should probably mention that SpaceX will be doing a static fire for the Bangabandhu mission on May 2nd from Pad 39A at KSC. There's no exact time, but keep an eye out for it because this is the first Block 5, so it'll be interesting just to see it on the pad. So, yeah, definitely check that out. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, I guess it's time to deal over the show, so we will cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com, and some of which is brought brought to you by Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash orbitalpodcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the Ground Control chat room listening to the show live. And thanks to our newest ADCO-level supporter, Michael Brown. Thank you very much. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. So that's it. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.